Hey everyone, welcome to Crossed Minds European History Podcast. I'm Sharon Sun and I'll be your host. In this series, we'll be exploring the world of Europe from the beginning of the Renaissance to the present era, according to the College Board curriculum. We're going to study the cultural, economic, political, and social developments of Europe, starting from around 1450 AD. Importantly, we'll also learn to make connections between these historical developments and understand the modern significance of these past events. Today, for our first episode, I'll actually be explaining the big picture of Europe in the few hundred years just before the Renaissance, so that way we can examine the foundation upon which modern European history is built. So let's get started. So it's important to talk about Europe in the late medieval ages because it gives an introduction to what changes the Renaissance ends up bringing later and the importance of these changes. So the medieval ages go by a couple of different names. There's obviously the medieval ages, then there's the middle ages, and then there's the dark ages. And they call it the dark ages because medieval Europe was a pretty scary place. So it's usually estimated by historians to be from around the 5th century AD or 400 to the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So the Middle Ages come about after 476 AD, and that's when the last Roman emperor in the West, Romulus, is overthrown by Germanic tribes attacking Rome. And I say emperor in the West because the entire Roman Empire, it was huge, it dominated all of southern Europe, the Iberian Peninsula, included the coast of North Africa, and also had parts of the Middle East. The Roman Empire... Um, had been split up into two empires because just so much land was just too difficult to control. So it had been divided into East and West. The Western Roman Empire was usually just called the Roman Empire, and that part collapsed when Romulus was toppled. However, the Eastern Roman Empire was essentially renamed to the Byzantine Empire, and that still survived after Romulus fell. So what's so important about the fall of the Roman Empire? Remember how the Roman Empire controlled almost all of continental Europe? It essentially unified all of Europe under a single government. And this was called centralization. You'll hear that word a lot in AP Euro. In European history, there's an important theme of centralization versus decentralization. So centralized basically means that power and authority is concentrated into a single place. For example, Roman Europe, it was a huge amount of land. It was all under the power of a single government with the Roman Empire emperor as the top dog. Um, so you can see then that decentralized means the opposite, that power and authority is spread out over large areas. So after 476, decentralization is exactly what happens to Europe. With Roman central authority gone, Europe pretty much splits up into a number of states. And so a new political policy develops, and it's essentially the formula for all of these new states. And this policy is called feudalism, which is important to talk about because it's practically the defining characteristic of the medieval age. You may have learned about feudalism in 7th grade history, but we're going to talk about it here as well. Um, so feudalism is a social structure in the medieval period where authority is decentralized, meaning that power is spread out all over the place. So feudal society was characterized by a sort of hierarchy, and it was a rigid structure where 
people were ranked above or below one another, and this determined their status and authority. It's a bit like a pyramid, where there would be fewer people at the top, and the top held the most authority, and most of the people were at the bottom, and they usually had the lowest status. Alright, so to cover the basics, we're going to talk about the four parts of this hierarchy. That is, the kings, the nobles, the knights, and the commoners, or peasants. And the kings were at the top of this pyramid. These kings had a claim to some large part of land. But in order to keep this land under his control, kings needed military might. And so to get this, they would organize groups of nobles, that is, men with special titles and privileges. And the kings would divide up this land that they controlled into separate estates, called fiefs. F-I-E-F-S. And they would give it to these nobles. They would give these fiefs to these nobles. And in exchange for this land, nobles would swear to defend the king. They would give something called an oath of fealty, basically meaning sworn loyalty. Nobles get this land, but then they're responsible for raising an army for the king. And so what they do is they build castles, basically walled fortresses, on their fiefs, not only as a home for their nobles, for these nobles, but also as places to train large numbers of knights, which is the next step on our pyramid. And knights were these warriors who were very specially trained in warfare and combat. And they would often be given heavy and expensive equipment. And these knights typically spent their whole lives training, making them a very elite force. So knights would provide these nobles with the military power and nobles would take care of the upkeep of these knights, providing food, homes, pay, etc. Nobles would get these resources for these knights um, through the peasants, the commoner class, and the nobles would allow peasants to live on their land, and so these peasants would work and farm this land. In exchange for living on the estate, they had to give either a portion of their harvest to the nobles, or they would be taxed directly. And so peasants also provided knights with some of their produce, as well in exchange for the knights' military protection. The bottom line is political authority in feudalism was decentralized. The king mostly had no power, and he had to rely on the nobles who had the actual means of military control. So the nobles really held the real power. And that's pretty much feudalism in a nutshell. Aside from feudalism, there was still another important hierarchy going on in Europe's feudal society, and it's persisted past the medieval ages and actually still remains today. This one has more to do with religion. So during the Middle Ages, Christian Catholicism was the dominant religion of Europe, and the religion was actually controlled by the Catholic Church, not necessarily the conventional church that your friend attends every Saturday, the Catholic Church was more of an entire religious organization that spanned all across Europe, based in Rome on the Italian peninsula. Most medieval folk just called it the church, so if you ever see that on a primary source, it just means the organization of the Catholic Church. And the church was very hierarchical, like feudalism, but unlike feudalism, it was actually very centralized. And I won't go too much into detail, but what you need to know is that the Pope is the head of the church, essentially the king, but with real power, making the position a very sought-after job. 
The church is also rarely called the papacy. And just below the pope were the cardinals, who were like members of a council who had the power to appoint the pope. Now, only cardinals were eligible to become pope. And as a side note, in AP Euro, cardinals are distinct in the artwork, like the primary source artwork, because they all wore red garments and robes. At the end of the day, medieval Europe was a pretty scary place for everyone, commoners in particular, and life was short, it was unpredictable, and it was dangerous. There's a lot of reasons why, but namely that medicine and science really sucked, and everyone was always at war with each other. So people put a lot of faith in religion in their daily lives, and they looked forward to salvation, which was the belief of going to heaven after they died. And so you can imagine that religion was a very major part of people's lives. Okay, so life in Europe stayed pretty static during the Middle Ages. There was nothing changing, nothing was developing, and life generally stayed the same for about a millennium. And that's what Apiro is here for, to study the developments made in the European world that led from the backwardness of the medieval ages to today's modernity. And so a number of major changes happened in a short time and they led to the end of the Middle Ages and to the beginning of the Renaissance. Chiefly, one of these is the collapse of the authority of the aristocracy and the clergy. Clergy meaning the religious authority, like the Pope and the Cardinals. Also, and probably most importantly, feudalism began breaking down. First, we're gonna talk about what happened with regards to the breakdown of the status of the church in medieval Europe. So the institution had always held a position as the body of the faithful, but later in the Middle Ages, it became more politically minded. The papacy began being seen more as a papal monarchy with political and secular, secular meaning non-religious, uh, goals rather than a religious institution like it had been established to be. The clergy also began to become more morally corrupt. In some instances, popes were having children, and that's not right because clergy had to take an oath of celibacy, basically meaning no kids. Another development of the turmoil in the Catholic Church was that of the papacy in Avignon. In 1309, French Pope Clement V moved the papal court from Rome to Avignon, a city in southern France. And so the church needed new money, uh, sorry, not new money, the church needed money in its new flat in Avignon. So a subsequent pope, Pope Clement VI, began the papal policy of selling indulgences. And these were basically little slips of paper that were pretty much a ticket to heaven. And they costed a lot of money because they served to raise revenues for the church. And to facilitate the selling of indulgences, the church even created the religious concept of purgatory, which was basically a waiting period after death where you weren't quite at hell, but you still had to wait to go to heaven. And other medieval folks did not like the surfaced idea of selling indulgences, so the Catholic Church started being seen among the people as worldly and as materialistic. 
And these were not traits that medieval Catholics wanted to see in their religious institution. And indulgences actually do show up again much later during A.P. Euro's Protestant Reformation, so actually don't forget about that concept. In 1377, Pope Gregory XI reestablished the papacy back in Rome. But here's the thing. The Avignon papacy was increasingly under French influence, obviously because it was located in France. So the papacy being in Rome meant that the church returned under Italian influence, being that Rome was on the Italian peninsula. So when the church returns to Rome, the French cardinals felt that their control over the Catholic church was being threatened. So here we start having religious characters with geopolitical interests. Back in Rome, they elected an Italian pope named Pope Urban VI. However, in Avignon, the French cardinals decided to elect another pope, this time a French pope named Clement VII. So here we have what's called in history the Great Schism, a divide in the Catholic Church. There's two popes now, one in Avignon, France, and one in Rome on the Italian peninsula. Both view themselves as completely legitimate, and both are unwilling to step down to mend the schism. This only ends, this whole fiasco only ends when a certain emperor, Sigismund, calls together a council in present-day Germany. And it was called the Council of Constance, and you guessed it, Constance, Germany. Um, so here, the council gets rid of the two popes, Urban and Clement, and it elects an entirely new one named Martin V. And so here, the papacy is permanently reestablished in Rome. We're going to move on to the next factor here for the ends of medieval Europe, and that chiefly is the invention of new technology for warfare. We're going to first see this development in the Hundred Years' War between France and England. And the name says a hundred years, like it's actually called the Hundred Years' War. The truth is it actually lasted for 116 years. So please don't make any mistake on our writing assignment saying the wrong thing. Um, and what happens is the French king dies without an heir. And so the people wonder who's going to be the next king. The king of England at the time had a claim to the French throne through his granddad, who was a late French king, and he wanted to take over France as well. But the French nobles did not want the English king on the throne, so they choose instead a minor French noble with some ties to French royalty as the next king. And the result is a war between France and England. A number of new weapons are going to be used in this late war, and one we're going to talk about is the English longbow. This was developed in England, and it was used by the English against the French. It was a bigger bow that not only fired arrows faster, but it could pierce through the armor of a knight from up to 200 yards away, and it was typically wielded by English peasants. So what does this mean? The knights relied a lot on their strong equipment to uh, protect them in battle. And so having a weapon that could be used by the peasants to defeat a knight 
who has spent all of his life training and who carries a ton of expensive equipment, that essentially renders the knight obsolete on the battlefield. So already you can see one class of feudalism, one important step in the pyramid is losing its power. Another innovation that came about and was used during the Hundred Years' War was the development of early artillery, namely that of medieval cannons. And these were designed to launch missiles far away, usually heavy missiles at that. And the rudimentary cannonballs that these would launch had the power to penetrate and destroy the fortified castle walls which had been built for an early form of medieval warfare. And they were usually designed to defend against arrows and not against, you know, stone cannonballs. So these cannons, uh, being able to penetrate these castle walls, allowed foot soldiers to breach castles and, you know, get inside and uh, fight all of the inhabitants. So you can see then, with the invention of cannons, castles, um, another major aspect of feudalism, also, like knights, become obsolete. And so with that, the power of the nobles also begins to weaken as it becomes easier to break into their castle homes. So the takeaway from the Hundred Years' War is that two major aspects of feudalism are becoming outdated as new developments and technology are coming into Europe. But wait, there's more. In the Hundred Years' War, we'll also see a third development, but this time it's something that's intangible. It's not like a brass cannon or a wooden longbow. It's actually a train of thought. I'm talking about the rise of national sentiment, better known as nationalism. And it's a super key word in the Euro curriculum. It'll actually be a recurring theme in the future. So back to 1337, that's the start of the Hundred Years' War. I mentioned earlier the nationalist idea of a nation's self-governance. In the Hundred Years' War, I also talked about how the French nobles didn't want an English, a foreign, king, and elected instead for a French king. The thing is, the French and English have had a long history of animosity with, with each other throughout the Middle Ages, which contributed to why the French did not want an English overlord. So already you can see there's an application of the idea of self-governance. Up steps Joan of Arc, an important character in the rise of national sentiment. She was a French peasant who basically went up to the king and said that she received a vision from God to drive out the English from France. The king ends up putting her in charge of his military and Joan ends up winning a number of astounding victories. She wasn't a military genius or anything. What happened was that she rallied the French behind a sense of national identity and inspiration. And at the end, she ends up putting the French king back in the power. However, Joan ends up captured by the English and she meets a tragic end by getting executed as a heretic. Still, she provides the momentum for the French to eventually push the English out of France and win the war. With that, we'll link the growth of nationalism back to the collapse of feudalism. Think of it this way. In a feudalistic society, 
commoners and knights were loyal chiefly to the nobles. In a way, this contributed to the decentralized state of politics, as power remained in the hands of the nobles. In a nationalistic society, the people were loyal to the nation. And who was the head of that nation? It was the king. So nationalism contributes to movements of centralizing governments and power that happened later in AP Euro. And like I said earlier, it becomes clear that feudalism as a stable policy is breaking down. I know this is a lot, but just bear with me. We got one more major event going on, and that is the Black Death. You might have learned about it in middle school, but practically all of Europe caught this virus called the bubonic plague, and it likely, you know, it likely spread along trade routes from Asia. But the point is that this virus was incredibly contagious, but there wasn't a lot of good knowledge about medicine during the Middle Ages. So firstly, people couldn't protect themselves from this virus because they just had no idea how it was transmitted. We know today it was carried via fleas, which bit rats, which carried the virus, and then these rats bit humans, and so on. But medieval folks had no idea about this, and it didn't help that they had very poor hygiene and lived in dirty, crowded spaces. And next, you know, because there was no, uh, there was very poor knowledge about medicine, medieval people had no idea how to cure themselves of it should they catch the plague. There was a lot of medieval thought about medicine, but it was mostly superstitious in nature, and it was ineffective at best. Um, for example, one common practice of medieval medicine was that of bleeding, and the purpose was to restore balance in the patient's bodily fluids in hopes that that would restore health, and like the name suggests, it would just, doctors would just suck blood out of you, either through cutting you, cutting you open a bit and letting blood run out, or getting leeches to just suck up your blood, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and obviously, it hardly worked. Today, doctors have a handle on the bubonic plague, and it's virtually been eliminated from the world, so don't sweat a bubonic plague 2.0. And I say this a bit ironically during the COVID ep epidemic, but I won't elaborate. So the bottom line is that this plague devastates the European population. You know, people are dropping dead like flies. An estimated third of the European population died from this plague, so you can imagine the economy is not going to have fun with this. People dying means a shortage of labor. And nobles had peasants farming their estates. And they would usually tax the peasants as payment or just rent for staying on the estate. With a third of the population gone, the labor supply pretty much tanks. Demand for labor goes sky high. And nobles have to offer peasants higher wages to entice them to stay on the farm. Not only that, with the population decrease, demand for skilled artisans in urban areas also goes up as well. So some peasants begin moving to the cities in search of higher paying opportunities. In short, commoners could demand more for themselves just because this mass death made the survivors so much more valuable. Migration to the cities away from the rural lands and the increasing wages of rural laborers 
causes the value of nobles' estates to fall, which once again points to the decline of the nobility, and further points even more towards the collapse of feudalism. It's a ton of info, but these are pretty much all of the important points of the late Middle Ages, and that'll be all for today. Thanks for sticking with me all the way through. Um, there's going to be a final nail in the coffin for the Middle Ages, but that has less to do with today, which is where we watch the core social structure of the Middle Ages come crashing right down. What happens next is a pretty much a Kickstarter for the Renaissance, and it'll be the topic of the next episode, which is when we really, really start the Euro curriculum. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you next time in Constantinople.